1: I'm Sheila Shoige and welcome to Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognize, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire challenge educate comfort or simply entertain you being healthy and well is at the forefront of our minds especially during this covid era so i'm delighted to say that for this season i've teamed up with an irish company that i really believe in taking revive active is one of the ways you can support your immune system this winter the award-winning Super Supplement contains 26 active ingredients, including vitamin C, D and zinc, all in one handy daily sachet. And to celebrate our partnership, they're offering a 10% discount on all Revive Active products. Simply go to their website, you'll find the link in the show notes, and use the code SHEILA10. This week, I have a chat with a friend of mine, Irish designer and proud carryman, Don O'Neill.
3: As I look back and it, things that you think in your life that are random, um weren't so random and when you think your life sort of meandered from left to right and right to left and all over the place for some reason when you look back it becomes a straight line it's like you pull a string and it just all the dots are connected in a straight line even though at the time you thought they were all curveballs so i i guess in my own i should know from my own experience that with the with the curveballs everything does pull straight into a, a definite line and And I have to pray and hope and just be confident that this curveball, which seems to be the biggest curveball I've ever been thrown, will, in hindsight, line right up with all of those other dots down through the past 54 years that have formed the life that I've had and that they will just continue to, the dots will continue to line up and... We'll continue to be blessed.
1: Don and his husband, Pascal, have been living in New York for 26 years and they're two of the most thoughtful and kind people I know. As a designer, Don has dressed some of the most powerful women in the world. Oprah Winfrey, Khloe Kardashian and Meghan Markle, to name but a few, with many Irish women also falling in love with his designs. My sister and I have been lucky enough to wear many of his goons down through the years, with Don also designing her wedding dress last year. When we spoke earlier this week, I really wanted to talk to him about the mood in America, especially after the recent events in the US election. We also speak about the pandemic, his glittering fashion career, dressing Oprah, his relationship with Pascal and how life has radically changed for them both in 2020. Don is a deeply spiritual man. This conversation proves that while life is full of ups and downs, the impact you have on others is more important than anything else. Don, thanks a million for agreeing to have a chat on the podcast. I want to start by talking to you about the past few days. What is the atmosphere like in New York?
3: Um, there's a sense of euphoria and a sense of relief that has sort of swept through. Well, in, in our neighborhood, uh, we actually, we were in, on, on Coney Island on the beach on, on Saturday when all of this happened. Um, we needed to we needed to de-stress and we thought going for a swim in the brisk cold ocean would be the way to sort of just put some adrenaline back in our bodies Mm. and literally we weren't on the beach half an hour when my phone started going crazy um, with everybody with congratulations pouring it from everywhere it was like literally half past 11 in the morning Um, and already people were live feeding the euphoria in the streets of New York and their neighbourhoods friends of ours in Thompson Square Park and on the Upper West Side, up on 208th Street, there was a unanimous outpouring of ce- celebrations everywhere that obviously you would have seen at home that lasted the day long. Yeah. And then when we got home here, um, we live where we live in Brooklyn, it's a mix between a conservative and a sort of a more liberal area. So we were wondering what the feelings would be. Mm. And literally, we came home and someone had that parody of New York, New York, playing Where the one where they're wishing for Trump to... Get out of yeah, town. Yeah. And it was playing out someone's window at, at top volume, which was we're like, Wait, yay, the whole the whole I mean, it was just it's it's the sense of relief has been extraordinary and it's unlike anything anyone has ever experienced here. People are likening it to the end of the war when when um mm. the, finally um the Germans surrendered and there was a sort of uh sense of euphoria euphoria, I guess. And here, as I mean, for a lot of your listeners who are listening to us th- today, they will, what's been on on TV and on radio in Ireland, and you've seen the rhetoric and you're seeing it through a different lens in Ireland, because I don't think the media at home is would be considered biased. Mm. Whereas people here in America tend to be, either you watch Fox News and that's all you watch, or you're watching other TV channels that are tend to be more liberal or just... I think more honest in their viewpoints Um, and people see the world in black and white here it's people are you're either one or the other and there's very few people sort of floating in the middle and over the past four years it's become more and more polarized um, with people on one side seeing things in one specific color and people on the other side seeing things in a very different color and we're both processing the same information and it seems both sides can't understand how the other side can't see what they're seeing, which is, to me, sounds crazy, because everybody, to watch Pascal and I and to our friends and our family at home, we see we see and process what we see on TV every day, and we have done for the past four years, and and we've watched the president, and you see him say one thing one day and something else the next day, and mm. then they have to spin it so it doesn't sound as bad as he made it sound, and they're they're trying to rework the story. But We're seeing it as as it happened. And for us, things were very apparent. But on the other side, things were wonderful. And if he made a guffaw or a slip up, it was like, good on you. And Mm. keep going. And I don't know. It just the anxiety and the tension over here was palpable. And people really felt like this election was a way for America to, I mean, the fight for the soul of America. But literally for America to get back the values of where honesty and integrity and Mm -hmm. responsibility were cherished values. And I think on Tuesday night, there was, for me and Pascal and all of us here, there was a sinking feeling when we saw how many Americans actually didn't share our values or didn't think that honesty and integrity and truth was what they wanted for the next four years. I think a lot of people were making financial decisions or, I think, uh, a decision based on Solely on the right to life, and they didn't want to know anything else. And it was, it really was a blow to the, the gut to see that close to 70 million Americans felt supported the president, which we were not expecting at all, which goes to show how divided this country is.
1: Yes, we've been glued to coverage here. I mean, the whole world has been hanging on the every move of the US election um, because it impacts it impacts the globe. I mean, it's front page news on every paper in every country around the world. But there's a tough road ahead. As you said, it's so divided.
3: It's not easy. I mean, we had President Biden have his, his victory speech. And as you can see in the polls, um, the projected polls are he is the president-elect and he has carried enough states and it looks like there are more to follow. And he's getting congratulations from world leaders around the world And this morning, we wake up to hearing that President Trump is planning more rallies. He's planning Mm -hmm. to get back out and motivate his base, um, telling them that the election was stolen from him and that the whole democratic process is a sham and nobody's votes were counted properly. And they're coming up with lie after lie after lie. And they're just destabilizing the whole country. And it really is, um, it's it's sort of increasing the anxiety levels again, because he just won't accept the results of the election and whatever comes out of his mouth i mean they keep on the radio and on tv they they keep repeating that all of his allegations are baseless that there are there is no evidence of voter fraud on any scale to be concerned about that but he just rants on and his base are behind him and they're very energized and unfortunately there is a violence on that side of the of the process that mm. is disturbing for a lot of people here.
1: Yes. And it seems like Joe Biden is the polar opposite to Trump. I mean, he's he's a, he's a different man on every level.
3: I mean, he's such a good man and he has he his values. I mean, he's proved himself down through the years. No politician is perfect mm. and people can discuss politics all day long and people have their views left and right and you're for or you're against. And most people can have a discussion without it coming to to blows or to being... The level that it has come here in America. But you can you can like a politician, and there are things they do that you, you wish they didn't do. Or they, Everyone has an opinion, and politicians have to be held accountable. And Joe Biden has had a spectacular career, and he's done things that people haven't been happy with, and he's done things that are extraordinary. And, and he's been a public servant, which is, he knows how to serve the people. He knows how to get the job done. And people who understand politics know that when you have a, um, an administration in power. Just because someone's in the White House doesn't mean that the Senate is supporting them or the House is supporting them and there are obstacles. It's, it's always a to and fro and there's a balance that needs to be struck. And I think, not that I think, I know that Joe Biden will do his best for the American people. And I know that when Joe Biden says that whether it's a red state or a blue state, he wants all Americans to be lifted up yeah. He's not. He's not vindictive, and um, the president, the, pres- the current president, has made it blatantly clear, demonizing democratic states and mm. jeering, and having his supporters at rallies jeering the New Yorkers or jeering the Californians or jeering whichever states that he deems um, aren't approving of him in, in significant numbers. Therefore, he doesn't like them anymore. It's it's extraordinary to see this kind of leadership, and yet that's what it is and Joe Biden is just the polar opposite to all of that
1: yes he speaks of unity and healing and moving forward and together but it's and he's
3: mm. he's been so he's been through so much personally Personally, he knows what loss feels like Um, (sighs) he's had so many personal tragedies that he's overcome with grace Um, he keeps referring to his faith which is extraordinary because he's a Catholic and you would think that so many people in this country that tend to be more religious in their leanings and that think that they're being driven by their faith you would think a man of faith would be somebody that they would support and yet the current president just tells them what they want to hear and yep they're all for him Mm -hmm. meanwhile joe biden yesterday was seen coming out of church after his after mass on sunday which he's attended every single day for his entire life Mm -hmm. and the catholic community have turned their back on him which just blows my mind it's incredible
1: for those listening who may not be aware of his his personal situation, I mean, he's he's a man who's had to bury two of his children. He's buried his wife. He's been through so much pain, um, unimaginable pain that most people can't relate to. But that gives him a level of, of empathy and deeper than that, compassion, that it seems to be completely devoid in, in Trump, as you said, so, so different. What have the past, past four years been like? I mean, was it a very noticeable change when Trump took over from Obama?
3: I feel there was um, there was an empowerment of the bully. There were people that I think I had, it's interesting, I had a conversation with a friend of mine um, uh, only recently last week and she said, for human beings to be good, we have to really work at it. That inherently our nature tends to be, our, bet- our, our bad angels somehow have a better job or an easier job of guiding us. And for us to do good, we really have to work at it and you have to make conscious conscious decisions for the most part, to be kind, to do the right thing. Um, She was explaining, but as children, um, your parents are teaching you to to share, to be kind, um, to stop pulling your sister's hair, to that hurts. That's not right. You can't do this. There's sort of a a moral code that's, um, that we are taught that Mm -hmm. we learn and then that we choose to follow. And um, I feel when Trump first of all when he came on the scene and for me one of the one of the things that just remains in my my head that visual scene of him making fun of the d- disabled journalist where he waved his arms in the air and made faces mocking the disabled and this was long before um this was during his first presidential run i'm like how can anyone even consider a man who does this who mocks yeah. the disabled someone who could lead a country and meanwhile he just went on to do more and more things that emboldened people that make fun of the disabled, that, that don't like gay people, that don't like immigrants, that don't like black people. And he, and he has opened the doors for them. And especially in his Twitter feed, he's, he has, for anyone that follows him, and you see his, his tweets, you will also see that he constantly um, retweets Ideals that are very ideological and very right-wing and can be very super conservative and racist. Mm-hmm. And he just, when he's confronted on those, he said, "Well, it's up to you to believe it or not." But he he knows what he's doing and he's propagating he's propagating those ideals and he is um, undermining sort of the good the good in all of us and sort of giving free reign to people who who want to be the bully or it's it's sort of allowing the the bad the or I don't know if the word is the bad angels but it's just mm. opening the gates for people to be the not not the better part of themselves. He's not inspiring us to be good. He's just letting people to run amok and that tone sort of per- permeated throughout the whole country in the past four years where he just emboldened the bully. Um, those that were, as you can see, which is horrifying when you see people out with their major weapons of war over their shoulders, swaggering through car parks, intimidating people. These are the people that he's emboldened and empowered that every other president down through the years has not condoned that because it's just not for the better good of anyone. And all of a sudden there's a president applauding these people and encouraging them to go out and be seen and to show their weapons. Mm -hmm. It's, It's that sense of fear that has permeated the country for the past four years and has led to the anxiety that we're in. And and we see him taunting more leaders. During the coronavirus, it was a, it really was so tragic here as we plummeted into the depths of it at the very beginning. And sitting here in New York, and you're listening on the radio every day and you're hearing Governor Cuomo and you're hearing Governor Murphy of New Jersey and the Governor of California, and they're leading their They're leading us on the radio. They're telling us what they're doing. They're giving us their... They sound like men who have had daily briefings from scientists, from their staff, from their communities. They're dealing with the situation. They're telling us how best to deal with us. They're telling us what they're doing with it. Meanwhile, all that was... Nothing was coming from the White House, zero. All of a sudden, if we were looking to these men for leadership to guide us through the darkness, and the president was absent during all of that, and then if they didn't play ball with the president he wasn't going to send them masks or he wouldn't send them aid or if he did send them aid then they were expected to go down and bend a knee and applaud him for his fabulous help for helping them it was it was it was like dealing with a four-year-old having a tantrum and you didn't know what best to do to get the aid you needed for your state meanwhile there were so many governors in this country that rose to the occasion in this unprecedented pandemic that everybody was feeling their way through it and everybody's concern was for the health and well-being of the people in their states. And that of course was not the case from the president right at the beginning and all the way through to even as simple a thing as wearing a mask and just encouraging people, listen, I don't want you to die, just wear a mask. And still that never happened. It still hasn't happened.
1: So right now with the sense of relief that you're feeling, um, we're on the cusp of change. You're on the cusp of change. I'm saying we because it affects it affects the globe. I mean we're we're it, you know, what what happens in America has the domino effect globally. Well
3: look at look at the environment, Sheila. Even mm. that alone. I mean there's so much work to be done on it. Um we know that we're we're fast approaching the point of no return. Um anyone who's paying attention to the coral reefs, who's paying attention to the the changes in our wet, weather climates, uh the fact that vast regions of um, farming communities are being are being turned into dust bowls where they won't be able to produce anything uh, water reserves are drying up there it's such it's it really is a crisis beyond imagination and to think that the leader of the one of the most powerful countries in the world thinks it's all a hoax is When the world is in such danger, the entire planet is in such danger, and we need to be pulled back from the brink of extinction, Mm. and this man just doesn't want want to know, doesn't want to hear about it, talk about it, it it makes no sense. And it makes no sense that 70 million Americans don't think it's an issue either, which is, that was heart-wrenching. Obviously, people... For a good reason. A lot of people don't trust governments. A lot of people don't trust politicians. They tell you whatever you want to hear to get elected, and then they get elected, and and sayonara. They don't want to have anything more to do with you. Um, But I I don't think Trump fulfilled the promises he was going to bring either. And people thought he was going to bring his expertise as an amazing businessman, and he was going to turn around the country, and he was going to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, the swamp became... Even even more rank, rancid, and the the country fell apart. It wasn't united at all. But again, there are people that they see their 401ks are improving, and hmm. that's all they need to see. They're they're making money. Their businesses are thriving. Um, a lot of people during COVID have been very successful. Their businesses have boomed. They've made more money than they've ever had before, and. They're attributing their success to President Trump, and they think keeping the economy open was, or whichever way the economy went, it was better for them in general, and um, they're giving him the credit for it.
1: Before we get into 2020 and what it's been like for you and for you and Pascal, um, can we can we go right back to your own American story when you came first came to New York and what that was like?
3: Um, well, for me, it was it was the American dream when I came here, and Bill Clinton was president, and he had um, the country. He had just become president, and the country was in um, an economic downturn. It was sort of a depression, so people wondered, "Why are you going to America for now?" For 1993, things don't look good over there. But for me, it was the land of opportunity, and um, I felt New York was the fashion capital, and this was. I I was in Paris at the time and I just felt like things weren't working for me in Paris. I had there were a lot of obstacles that I wasn't overcoming. And I thought, I'll give America a shot and see what happens. And I was fortunate enough to apply for and win a green card, which opened the door for many opportunities for me here. And then I came here and it was a tough slog. It wasn't easy. I, I lived with friends of my mom and dad, um, a woman from Ballet High called Brita Casey or Brita Zielinski, who lived in Long Island. And I lived with them for the first seven or eight months when I first came to America. And they had a monogramming business, um, which I helped out with part time um, just to contribute to, towards my uh, room and board at their house. Um, as I trudged the streets of Manhattan and the fashion district with my portfolio, trying to find a job in fashion and it literally took me it took me nine months before I found a job mm. but I was determined and I just kept I kept knocking on doors and kept sending out letters and resumes and eventually um one stuck and I got my foot in the door but it was it was it was hard it was hard work um it wasn't easy um uh, my first job when I did get it I was um Basically, a design assistant for Carmen Mark Valvo, who was a well-known evening wear designer at the time. And I remained with Carmen for 10 years. But during my 10 years there, I went from a design assistant to a designer to being Carmen's uh, design director, Um, which was extraordinary, um, working sort of in the shadows behind Carmen. And it was an an extraordinary. um, It was a a wonderful 10 years. Um, I... Pascal and I were able to save up enough money to buy a house um, in that 10 years that we worked for Carmen. So it was all, all of the the American dream scene was was working out for us basically. And after 10 years at Carmen, I was headhunted um, by a company in Canada who had acquired the license for Badshimishka and they needed a designer to. The brand had gone bankrupt and they needed a designer to haul them out of bankruptcy and. Uh, reinvent the brand um, similar to what I was doing at Carmen, um, giving people sort of luxury at affordable prices, which Bad Jumishka had been a couture company and had been making dresses selling from 3000 to $10,000. And mm. now this company wanted to make dresses similarly priced to what I was doing at Carmen, priced from $600 to $1,500. Um, Long story short, I took the job and I worked for them for three and a half years and I turned the company around for them and we were incredibly successful. Um, It was a period of huge personal growth for me because I really, at the time, bit off. I knew I was biting off way more than I could chew, Mm -hmm. but I was very fortunate to have A, the love and support of Pascal, which was really crucial during that transition time. But basically, when I took that job, all I had was a computer, a desk, and a pencil and a pad and there was a salesperson, a president of sales, and that was it. And I was told, okay, now make this happen. And it slowly came together. I was surrounded by friends and people sort of came out of out of my past and pointed me in the right direction. And before I knew it, I had a, a great staff around me and I turned around that business. And in three and a half years, an extraordinary thing happened. Um, even though I was designing for Badgley Mishka, the company was promoting Don O'Neill as the designer which mm-hmm. was ex- which was unheard of because for people who are not familiar with big big fashion houses there is there is the designer the name there's the Michael Kors and there's the Valentino and there but underneath them there are teams and teams of creative directors design directors senior designers designers design assistants that are all designing the product and basically the head Michael Kors will give people the idea or Ralph Lauren will give them the idea they want for the collection and they'll they'll shepherd or steer the process, but they really don't do much of the designing. Mm. And at Badji Mishka, same case, there was a designer who did couture, there was me doing the platinum label. Um, but the company that I was working for, the licensor, were promoting Don O'Neill as the designer. So all of the buyers from all the major department stores and stores around the world knew that Don was designing it. And then I was being sent around the country promoting the collection. I would go to Neiman Marcus and Saks Fifth Avenue stores around the United States, and there'd be a big, a big sign when I would arrive: "Welcome, Don O'Neill, Creative Director of Bad Mishka, Come meet him today. Yada yada, and try on his dresses." Um, hmm. So there was a, there was already um, a foundation being laid um, for me as a, as a, as a design, as a designer with my name being recognized. So three and a half years in. The label came up for, um, the license was to be renewed. And the company I worked for decided that they were paying a huge amount of money in royalties. And we, Don was already known to be the designer and we were successful with Don. Therefore, we would create our own label and sever ties with the Batch Mishka entity. So at that stage, um, I was given the opportunity to create something new Um, something in my head told me... I was given the opportunity to put my name on the label, but I decided not to because I wouldn't have owned my name. And at that point, um, I had been working on a gown, a beautiful white, all-white strapless chiffon gown with a ruched bodice and a giant circle skirt, and it had a really elaborate beaded, jeweled waistband. And it was very goddess-like. So the goddess was circling on my head, and when I was trying to find the name... For the new brand, I went through all sorts of goddess names. And obviously, my, my first love would be the Celtic and the Irish goddesses. But a lot of the names proved a little bit hard to pronounce or they wouldn't—they didn't translate. Mm. And I happened upon Thea. And Thea in the Greek language is the word for goddess. And then Thea was the titan of the goddesses. She was the sort of the, the supreme head goddess. And it just made sense to me that um, the collection was about goddesses so we, did, we we decided to call the collection Thea and within a week of calling it Thea when we were working on the brand or the branding and the, the logo, we discovered that she was the goddess of light and that she had brought light into the world. And that was sort of the genesis for the collection about illuminating women's inner light and making them feel like a goddess and that became the whole brand, the whole meaning behind the brand and what pushed pushed us forward at the time and that was 12 years ago. And then that sort of set the stage for me to have complete. I already had complete creative control at Bad Mishka. They really didn't oversee what I did. But once Thea was formed, again, I was able to steer the brand and create as I saw fit.
1: Let's talk about Thea Couture and the many very powerful, very influential women that you have have dressed for major events, like the Oscars, you know, uh, on the covers of magazines, people like Oprah Winfrey, Khloe Kardashian, Taylor Swift, Carrie Underwood, Meghan Markle. I mean, there have been so, so many. You've had such an amazing career, Don.
3: Um, I have been blessed and I I am truly grateful. And I sincerely, I sincerely, can say that every time somebody of note has worn one of my dresses it has truly been a woohoo pinch me I can't believe they're wearing my dress moment and it started right at the beginning with Thea. I had been I had been fortunate to dress Carrie, Carrie Underwood at Badger Mishka and then when we moved forward to thea we weren't we were there just a few months and I think it was the um, country music awards were coming up and um Carrie's stylist uh, reached out to me um A lot of you may not know, but when when a stylist is dressing a celebrity, they pull from several designers and there's Mm -hmm. sort of an array of dresses that are laid out on racks in hotel bedrooms during a fitting for the celebrity to to then decide what they'll wear on the night on the red carpet. And she reached out to me at Thea and said, OK, Don, Carrie loves your work. What can you what can you give us for the um, the upcoming awards? And basically I had there were some beautiful gowns and there was one one that i had made specifically with her in mind and it was this extraordinary embroidery of um silver uh disc shaped beads that were like cut out circles um and it was a very graphic embroidery and i made it i used it on a very simple slip dress and of course carrie fell in love with the dress and we had our first beautiful major celebrity moment with carrie on the red carpet right out right out of the bat at thea and the dress was everywhere and all of the magazines and tabloids here and of course the name Thea was with them Mm. and then she followed that right up for the Grammys. She wore a short mini dress, um, a one shouldered goddess-inspired mini dress in sort of a pale gold um, lame with a jeweled belt and it had like a scarf hanging off the shoulder over her back and at the same time Carrie cut her hair. So there was a double whammy. Carrie was at the height of her career at the time. The dress was super short, it looked sensational on her. She had a new haircut and the images went everywhere, and that, that those pictures literally went on for a year, from her being the best dressed at the Grammys to her best look ever, to her best haircut ever, to Carrie looking great, and it was all Thea, 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 which was extraordinary for us and for the brand as we were sort of just getting out the door. And then, of course, in uh, 2011, um, one of the uh, magazine editors from Oprah was up in the office and. They're always looking at dresses for different stories that they're doing, and she saw the gold sequin gown. And I think she was—it was some stage, in, she was probably in March that she was up, or no, it wasn't. It was probably the end. It was probably the beginning of May that she was up, and she she said, "Oh my God, that dress is amazing! Is there any way you can make it in two weeks or three weeks? It was some really short window mm. um, as a possibility um, for Oprah to wear for a cover shoot." And we're like, oh, my God, of course. So, of course, we stopped everything and put that dress into work. And we got it back on time and it was sent to Oprah. And then we heard heard no more about it. And then in July, we heard it was one of the dresses shot for the cover shoot. But they wouldn't give us any more information than that. (laughs) So then we had to wait patiently, patiently, patiently until the cover was printed, which was it was a September issue. But it came out in the third week in August. I think it was the third week in August or second week in August. And Melissa got a call from Melissa, who did my PR for Mm. the whole 11 years that I was there. Extraordinary woman. Um, Melissa got a call from Hearst Magazines, from the editor at Oprah. The cover is on my desk. you want to come up and have a look at it? Your dress, your gown, the Théa Gown is on the cover. Wow. So Melissa, who's known to wear the highest Leboutin heels you could possibly imagine, <laughs> literally ran from our office, literally 15 blocks up to the Hearst, Hearst Tower, to the Hearst offices, to see the magazine with her own eyes. And it was indeed that famous cover that we all know of Oprah on yeah. the cover. So within uh, three days, they gave us our own copy of the magazine right before it hit the newsstands and i was obviously beyond excited it was oprah i mean she still is and in an, a huge 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 celebrity but in 2011 Massive. she was just everywhere her tv show everything at the magazine she was at the at the super uber heights of her fame and to be dressing oprah was just surreal for us so I was so excited. I went out and made T-shirts. Um, <laughs> Did you? <laughs> I had. I made T-shirts of the magazine cover for all our staff to wear. I didn't get, know that. The team in Canada. I the love t- it. Our, my staff. My so we and we took all these pictures, holding the magazine, wearing the T-shirt, running around the city with our T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> it was. We were like kids at Christmas. It yeah. was so super exciting and of course then the media at home in Ireland picked up on it and there was radio interviews it was super super exciting yeah. it was it literally was everywhere I remember one day mom saying oh Don for good's sake I can't go anywhere <laughs> without people stopping me to congratulate me about Oprah yeah meanwhile mom was loving every minute of it of course and so that was in September and then the following just the beginning of 2012 um for the Oscars um In January, they reached out to us. Um, They wanted to make an adjustment to the dress that she was considering wearing it to the Oscars. We're like, OMG, that would be insane that she Mm -hmm. would wear it again. And literally, we made the alteration and then we didn't know what was going to happen. And then on the night of the Oscars, we we heard that she was being um, awarded an honorary Oscar. And there was the photos of Oprah in her in her beautiful Don O'Neill sequin Thea gown um, with her honorary Oscar. And again, it was just news all over everywhere in Ireland that Oprah had worn Don O'Neill to the Oscars, and it was hugely, hugely, hugely exciting. Yeah. And then fast forward um, to the premiere of The Butler. Um, she asked, I had made several pieces for her, but she had asked. they had asked for a special piece for The Butler, and she wanted sort of a, a shell pink... Um, gown in the similar sequence to the gown she wore to the oscars because she claimed it was the most comfortable dress she'd ever worn and she wanted a short version um for the premiere of of that movie here in new york mm-hmm. so we made the dress got the dress to her and then of course we heard no more from her and um, we thought okay i guess she's chosen not to wear it because uh, we knew that the premiere was on a monday and not we'd heard nothing And then that Monday morning, I literally had just left the house and I got a frantic phone call from Melissa. Oh, my God, Don. They're at the Waldorf Astoria and can we get there immediately? She wants to wear the dress tonight to the premiere and they need an alteration. I'm like, holy crap. (laughs) And this was the one day I I wasn't particularly looking uber fabulous. I'm like, oh, my God. okay. you turn, run home, fix the hair, change the outfit. Back in the subway, uh, went straight to the Waldorf and um, met Melissa in the lobby and we're waiting, waiting. Oprah was on Good Morning America and hadn't come home yet. So we we're waiting at the back entrance for her entourage to arrive. Yes. Anyway, um, the entourage arrived and Oprah was swept up to her suite. And her stylist said, Okay, just give us five minutes to get set up and then you guys come on up. So we went up, rang the doorbell of the bedroom. And it was Oprah herself that opened the door. I couldn't believe it. I was expecting the stylist to open the door. And Oprah's like, oh my God, Don. <laughs> she knew our first name is Don Melissa. Thank you so much for coming. This is yours, you guys are so good. I'm sorry to do this too so early in the on Monday morning. And this is so last minute. She was all apologies. <laughs> Meanwhile, we would have we would have jumped through fire hoops <laughs> to, to be with her that morning. But anyway, she was so gracious that I'm really sorry, she said. I wasn't going to wear the dress because I didn't want to upstage my co-stars because the movie's not all about me. But then Gail was here last night and Gail said, Oprah, you need to wear the dress. So she <laughs> said, I'm sorry, but I just need I just need just the hem to be sorted out. So anyway, um, she put on the dress and we're literally, um, she we were in the living room of this palatial suite at the Waldorf Astoria and she came out um, barefoot um, in the dress. And I'm like, um, I can't really work on the dress without seeing you in a mirror it's how I work I need to I need to be facing a mirror it just helps me to see proportions better hmm. and she said well the only mirrors on my bedroom and it's like a bomb hit it so you can't go in there I'm <laughs> like well I don't know how we're going to do this she said all right she said into the bedroom so we followed her into the bedroom and there was like a dressing they had set up like a dressing room area that was just full of racks of dresses and shoes everywhere it was like I guess she had a lot of events that week in New York and had brought everything with her. Mm. So anyway, we fit the dress, and the crack was mighty. She's really funny, and we had a great repartee between us. And um, she was telling me the story about how she felt bad if she wore, if she had shown up on the red carpet wearing that dress and would have upstaged her co-star. And I told her, if you had worn your dressing gown on the red carpet, you would have upstaged <laughs> him. So you might as well have scored something pretty. Brilliant. So we we fixed the dress for her, or yeah. we pinned it. And then we went back out into the the main the living room of the suite, and Melissa politely asked if it was possible if we could have a, a picture with her. Mm. So the assistant said, "Well, let me just check." And we heard her yell, "Yeah, give me five minutes, I'll be out." And meanwhile, her breakfast was sitting that her breakfast had arrived and was sitting on a tray under a under a silver dome going cold. Mm. There was already a line of reporters lined up in the hall outside the suite because she was still doing the press junket for the movie and had still about. I think, 50 people to see before lunchtime. So she had a, a really busy day ahead of her. Anyway, uh, we said, it'd take two minutes. Um, literally, two minutes later, Oprah came out. Um, she'd taken off my dress, the pink dress, but she had put on a black sequin skirt that I had made for her a few months before that. Hmm. And then she said, oh, I, I, Don, I found one of your skirts. I wanted to wear something you made in the picture. I'm like, oh, that's so yeah. sweet. And she said, and I have this black Donna Karen sweater, this cashmere sweater. So she threw on the cat. Oh, she was wearing the cashmere sweater and the skirt. She had her shoes, a pair of black shoes in her hand. And then she walked into the middle of the this huge living room, like, okay, where do we stand? Okay. So she literally grabbed me and positioned me in the room. And then she pulled back the curtains because they hadn't been fully open to let in more light. And then she looked at me, adjusted me so that the shot would be right. And then she slipped on her shoes and then um, gave our phone or Melissa's phone to her assistant to take the picture. And she stepped in beside me and we took the picture. And of course, we were I was on cloud bloody nine. I was yeah. like, it was insane. There's Oprah with her hands around me taking a picture. And literally, we weren't, I guess, as soon as we left, we were, we floated back to the office to work on the dress. And it was just euphoria. Like, you have no idea. Mm. And Melissa posted the picture on um I guess Instagram or Facebook or wherever at the time, and literally that night, um, Mary Chalk, yeah, texted me. Oh my God, Don, you're on the cover of the Irish Independent. I guess you'd seen an early copy somehow. So um, Mary Chalk, for those listening,
1: so for those yeah. listening, Mary Chalk is a mutual friend of ours. Yeah, I mean, this um, is Mar- ma-
3: this is, like, oh is a massive moment.
1: And
3: it was incredible. There I was on the front of the Irish. Independent, and they had blown up the picture, and there was myself and Oprah, and it was like the biggest thing that Don O'Neill met Oprah, and it was, I mean, it was huge news at home, and of course then that that set off a whole chain of events for the next next day or two with radio radio show interviews, and um, I think there were TV, I can't remember if there were TV interviews or not, but there was all sorts of media reached out to me. The whole nation of Ireland was just jumping up and down with joy and excitement that. I guess an Irishman had had met Oprah and that um, she was wearing my dresses and that we were friends. And it was just there was a there was a collective nationwide euphoria to dressing her, which was just incredible. It was it was amazing.
1: She is one of the most powerful people in the entire world. And the fact that she went in to put on your skirt, I think says so much about her because she knew she knew the impact that moment could have for you.
3: When yeah. I reflect on it, I realize that the magic of Oprah is her gift of giving. Yes. And and she gives asking nothing in return. It's just who she is. She gives, she gives, she gives, and she puts it all out there and it just and she lets it go. And I was standing there grinning from ear to ear like a four year old because I was just so happy. Mm. But she knew she was orchestrating that picture as a gift to me. She was making sure it was going to be the best picture possible. She was making sure that she was wearing something that I made for her and considering her schedule and her time, the value of her time. And that day was such a crammed, packed, busy, busy day for her, as I'm sure every day was. But I could see with my own eyes, her bre- she hadn't even had breakfast yet. She'd been up since four o'clock to be on Good Morning America. And she took the time to go and find that skirt because she knew she had it and find a sweater to match it and the shoes to match and to make that picture happen. There is no value that could be placed on that gift. And it just says everything about Oprah.
1: It does. I want to talk about you and Pascal. um, Yes. Because you're like, you know, and and for those listening, I've known you guys for years, like we're friends. Um, and you're like love-struck teenagers, which is just adorable. You've been together. You, you, you'd swear if you only met you, you'd be like, "Oh, they're clearly only together a few months or maybe a year because they're in that loved-up stage of life." But it's, it is the loved-up stage eternally with you guys.
3: Well, it's now twenty-seven years. Twenty-seven literally, years, wow. Yeah, of, of, of us being together, mm. and I have to say, um, I do think I was. I must have been. I think I must have been born under a rainbow, even though Dad tells me that there was a hor- there was fierce thunderstorms on June 12th, on 1966. <laughs> it was a Sunday the day I was born, and it was ferocious thunderstorms. But I'm convinced there was a rainbow somewhere and that I popped out under a rainbow because I have truly been so fortunate and so blessed in every aspect of my life. And most importantly, um, meeting Pascal was the most charmed and the the gift that I am the most grateful for, because the man has, as you know, mm-hmm. he has the patience of a saint. Mm-hmm. Um, and his love is unconditional and it's unending. And Pascal is just, his only desire is to make the world a better place for everybody that he knows. Yeah. And fortunately for me, I'm at the top well almost at the top of the list his mom is definitely at the top of the list mm. but he just is out there to make the world the most beautiful place that it can be for everybody and for everyone's experience in this world in any way that he can to make it a better place for them and for our 27 years together it truly has been it truly has been magical for me and i have learned so much from him even though I have I have the memory of a goldfish going around in a bowl with my mm. mouth open half the time, forgetting what I just heard five minutes ago. Um, but he has taught me so much, and Pascal truly believes that to keep keep to keep the fires of love um, going, you need to keep putting wood in the fire, and you just need to keep. You have to work at it basically, yeah. and you have to make every day special, and you have to make life special. And life is fleeting, and we just have to have a. Um, we have to make it as special and as love-filled as we can and that every moment together is important. And there's a story that I tell often and everyone that knows Don and Pascal on the R train going into work in the morning for the past, um, at least ever since um, I started working at Badger Mishka because as I was telling you, it was a really tough transition for me and I was a nervous wreck and going into work in the mornings was a challenge and Pascal would get off the train at 28th Street in the Flower District, which was three stops ahead of me getting off in Times Square. And he would st- he would hold my hand all the way into work. Here I was at the age of 39 years of old age, and my husband was holding my hand um, mm-hmm. because I was such a nervous wreck all the way in on the train. And then he'd get off this train, and he'd stand on the platform at the door of the subway, waiting for the door to close, and then he'd wave until he couldn't see me anymore. Oh. And we started doing that... 12, almost 12 years ago, and we we did it right up until um, the pandemic in March. But literally, Pascal would stand at the doorway. And over the years, we've gotten to know people on the train and they'd always comment, oh, th- those two, nice to see you this morning, how are you? But it was, a, it was a schedule that we just did. and But that's very much indicative of who Pascal is and,
1: and who you are as a couple.
3: I, I guess, yes, yeah. but I just, just feel like I'm just so blessed that he has the patience of a saint and he's just so love-filled and, um, and that he just has the patience to put up with me. I'm a Gemini, just we didn't get into that. And <laughs> Gemini's tend to be a small bit all over the place and hugely me disorganized. And Pascal is very organized and very disciplined. And when he sets his mind to do something, he does it. Meanwhile, I set my mind to do something. And three seconds later, I've forgotten completely <laughs> what I set my mind to do. Oh and I have started something else. And then Pascal's like, what? Where's the thing that you found? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's underneath that over somewhere. I forgot about that. And weren't you supposed Oh, yeah, I forgot about that too. <laughs> I swear the poor man, he's just a saint, basically, that he puts up with me and has put up with me for so long.
1: But that's why you work so well, because it's the yin and the yang, isn't it? You oh, know?
3: God, it's, we're more yin and yang than you could possibly
1: imagine. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm thinking back on your wedding day, which was the most glorious wedding. Um, and it was at home, hometown, in home Bali village Hague. in Ballyhigh. And I mean, it was the most beautiful day on every level and crack and laughter and tears and and all the rest. It was it was pure magic. Um, and that was only four years ago. So you took your time done.
3: Uh, well, there was many reasons why we took our time, yeah. but basically for the longest time we couldn't because know, yeah, gay course. marriages were not um, gay marriages weren't recognised in neither here nor at home. And we had spoken about, for many years we'd spoken about doing a, a ceremony just, just mm. for us and for our families, just to celebrate our union and bring our families together and just celebrate our love and share it with everybody. So that that's something we had always wanted to do. Um, and of course, Pascal always wanted to be engaged. And um, we would often, we always refer to each other. Oh, check that, check with my husband. Ask my husband if he's <laughs> all right with that. Or we just fondly refer to each other as husbands for the longest time because we were obviously together for so long. Yeah. And then when people, when Pascal would say, oh, my husband, people say, oh, I didn't know you were married. And Pascal would prop up his hand, his left hand and, or his right hand and go, do you see a rock on this finger? And I'm like, no. And I, he would say, well, he hasn't proposed to me yet, so I'm technically not his husband. And then, of course, he'd tell me afterwards, don't you go buy me a bloody diamond ring? I'm only joking. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that joke went on for years and years. And then finally, uh, we were celebrating our 20th anniversary and we went to Miami for the weekend. Um, and I decided I would propose to Pascal that weekend. Um, and for me to organise anything for anyone that knows us, uh, but most surprisingly for Pascal that I could pull that off. But literally, um, I had always thought that if ever I proposed to Pascal, I'd fly an airplane over the beach. We'd be on a beach and I'd fly an airplane over the beach with a proposal on a banner. So anyway, I got to work on that and called several companies in the Miami area and found someone that could do it. Um, they were a bit, The woman was a bit scatterbrained, but anyway... Um, <laughs> I got her to do what I wanted her to do, and um, my my design assistant at the time had gotten engaged six months earlier, and her fiance had surprised her uh, by having a candid photographer hidden in the background that captured the whole thing on camera. And she was like, "Don, you need to capture it on camera because our pictures, because it'll be so fleeting that you won't remember it." So, started myself out with a photographer, decided we do it on the beach on Sunday morning. Um, on South Beach um, and I thought Sunday morning it'll be nice and quiet and it's the day of our anniversary and there'll be nobody there and we'll have the beach all to ourselves at 10 o'clock and the airplane will fly over and I'll I'll give him the ring and his card and the whole shebang. Anyway, um, of course several things didn't sort of go according to plan or to schedule so it was a little bit nerve-wracking in the morning. Um, Sonia, the photographer, showed up a little bit late and then she was wearing head-to-toe black on the beach at that hour of the morning and we were all swimming dogs and with a big camera around her and I'm like, oh my God, she's so (laughs) bloody obvious. (laughs) Obviously, but Pascal, it didn't mean anything to Pascal. I'm like, but meanwhile, it was so blatantly obvious to me. She sets up about 10 deck chairs away from us on the beach. (laughs) And then I'm like, oh my God, the girl I booked the plane from, she was a little bit dingbatty and I hope she got the time right. And oh my God, maybe she got the day wrong. Because of course, if it was me, I probably would have got the day wrong. I'm like, oh my God, maybe she put the wrong date in the calendar and the plane's not going to come. So, I think I scheduled the plane for quarter to 10 and there was no trace of the plane. And I was very anxious and nervous. And we had an umbrella. Pascal wanted to put up a bloody umbrella because the sun was really hot and I didn't want the umbrella up. And I'm like, oh my God, of all days, he wants a bloody umbrella. Meanwhile, he could—he never gets sunburned and he wants an umbrella up. Anyway, I convinced him to put the umbrella down. And he said, what's wrong with you? You're very anxious this morning. I'm like, no, I'm grand. Bloody grand. <laughs> Just get me a suntan. <laughs> yeah. Let me get my suntan um anyway literally um i <clears throat> he decided at about quarter to ten that he was baking hot he was going to go for a swim mm-hmm. i'm go like, oh, for fixing you can't go for a swim now <laughs> and he said no i'm boiling hot i'm like uh dad's gonna call us in like five minutes to wish us a happy anniversary he's like what i said yeah he said he would call us a quarter to ten hurry up go for a quick swim So anyway, Pascal heads off for the swim at this stage. I'm just going to go over to Sonia and tell her, Sonia, if the plane doesn't come, just give me five minutes after he comes out of the water and you'll see me going down a 1E and just do whatever whatever you're planning to do. And as I'm saying this to her, I could see all the way down to South Beach and in the distance, I could see a teeny little plane. I could see a banner and I had put two love hearts, one on either end of the banner and I could see the red dots. I'm like, shit, the plane's coming. (laughs) Oh my God, he's in the water. (laughs) So I go tearing back up to our deck chairs and I'm yelling at Pascal like there's a bloody shark in the water. To get out of the... To come out, <laughs> get out of the water. And of course, your man thinks he's bloody James Bond and he's walking out of the water and sauntering up the beach. Oh She's sauntering up the beach. I'm like, could you hurry up? Anyway, Pascal eventually makes it up to the deck chair and he's he's picking up his... I'm like, sit down, sit down. Sit down. I get him to sit on the, sit on the thing because I, I thought the plane would be here any minute. And I had made him a card that I wanted him to read that he was supposed to read before the before I popped the question and it was the 20 reasons that I loved him for the 20 years and so I took the card out of my bag to I had on my beach bag to hand him with this big card and of course I was so panicked I oh, I ripped the I, te- I tore open the envelope Aww. and I sat him down and handed him said, what you do just read the card so he sat down and of course there was a beautiful picture of us from from 20 years ago 20 years earlier on the card and he's admiring. I said don't op- just open the bloody card and read it <laughs> And then he starts reading the cards. I'm like, oh, my God, I could hear the airplane. I'm like, oh, shit, the plane's here. So literally, I I started, cry. the emotion had gotten the better of me at this stage. And I was, I, I started crying. And he's like, what's wrong with you? And I had the ring in behind my back in the little ring box. And I'm like, just look up. And literally, as I said, mm. look up. The plane was over over us in the sky. It was Pascal, jatin will you marry me? Mm. And I'm in floods of tears. And he's in shock. And then I opened the ring box. And then everything sort of just goes into slow motion. And, of course, I thought South Beach would be quiet on the 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. The freaking place was mobbed. Hmm. <laughs> so, meanwhile, all of the everyone's yelling on the beach because people saw the plane, so they knew there was a proposal somewhere. And then no one knew where it was until I was down on one knee. So, everyone knew we were the couple. So, everyone's yelling and cheering. Oh. And, did he say yes? And then Sonia's around us with the camera, and he's crying, and I'm crying. And it was just... Anyway, it was... It was very, very magical. So I pulled off the engagement. And then Pascal, for the next several years, planned the wedding. And of course, he pulled off the most spectacular wedding yeah. we could ever have wished for, as as you witnessed oh, was amazing. in Ballyhide, where mm. literally I didn't think it was possible to have a wedding in Ballyhide because I'm like, there's no venue. And Pascal's like, no, there's nothing is impossible when Pascal sets his mind to it. But
1: I really wanted to talk as well about... About your lives in terms of your lives pre-COVID and what it is now, because it's obviously radically, radically different. I mean, the last time I saw you guys was at Grand Leon's wedding in December and you were there till all hours dancing the night of the way. And your schedule even before you arrived, you know, at the venue was, you know, you were both flying in from different directions, which was the norm for you guys. And then you were flying, I think you were flying back home and off again. Wednesday. Yeah, uh, life was busy.
3: Life, life had been busy <clears throat> and was busy and um, work for me was it was insanely busy and Pascal as you all know is a very talented florist and has his own business and being self-employed he was able to move his schedule around my schedule and if I was traveling he was able to travel and have other people help where needed here in New York when they needed to um, but I was work. I had the literally had the candle burning at both ends and in the middle for the past couple of years at Thea. Um, we had the evening wear collection. We had the bridal collection, both of which were very successful. Then management wanted to add in the bridesmaids, um, which was also very successful. Um, and I pretty much um, was a creative director in that sense, in that I had two very capable design assistants to young girls and I let them have at it with the bridesmaids because I just knew that they related totally to the girl that would want to wear those dresses. And then I sort of just made sure that it had the Thea feeling to the collection and that was successful. Um, and then sort of last year at the beginning of 2019, management wanted um, a more affordably priced collection um, of less expensive evening dresses layered on top. And at the same time, Nima Marcus approached us to add in a more expensive range uh, of just 10 to 12 dresses, um, retailing from $2,000 to $3,000. So that would have been the true Thea Couture label in the more expensive sense of the word. So all of a sudden there were five collections going on and my office just became like Grand Central Station with interns and staff and extra people and... A collection mood boards, or this collection, the bridesmaids' collection, the bridal collection. It was just, it it became very, very chaotic. And even though I'm a disorganized person, the chaos for me was becoming overwhelming, and it was kind of hard to manage. And at the same time, I had my busy schedule where I'm, I was constantly traveling. Nima Marcus were asking for me to do more and more shows around the country. So Evelyn, the president of Thea, and I were literally I would have a a bridal show a week away but I still had to be at Nima Marcus in Houston Texas or someplace the week before there was a lot of a lot of traveling and I adore I really adore the traveling and meeting my customers and being on the floor and and selling my existing dresses to them and then hearing what they loved about the collection or things they wished were on the collection that I could take back sort of to my put in the, the back of my head and Designing the next collection I'd remember that lady who asked for that specific thing, thinking, yeah, that was a good idea. I should put that in the collection um and then i would I had these big trunk shows in Calgary every year that I would fly to um and a lot of all of these trips were major trips, and we did them in the space of a day or two, mm-hmm. even when I would go home to Ireland to do an event literally we'd arrive on the night the day of and we would fly either the day or the day after everything was like a two day turnaround trip, and even um Going home for for Grania's wedding, um, I was home for Christmas, but Pascal had been in Guadeloupe, and literally he flew from Guadeloupe um, to Paris, and then from Paris to Dublin, and then we had Grania's event. Um, literally, he was in Ireland for less than 24 hours for the wedding. Yeah, but that's typically how we how we rolled and how we travelled, and it was very exciting.
1: And it's also um, back to what you were saying earlier about living every day and living every moment, because you would think that because he had travels so much and you were on the go so much that you would be in for the dinner and then you'd be gone. But you were so hands on. I mean, Grainne in her speech spoke about the fact that she didn't have a bridesmaid, but she had two in yourself. And Pas- Pascal, because you were <laughs> so hands on, it was incredible. And obviously she looked so beautiful in in your gown, which meant so much to her. And I remember
3: pascal literally out on that bridge in the morning yeah. where we're going, and Leon on top of that first picture and pascal's like they're not taking a picture there i'm like what do you mean he said the ground's filthy and her dress is going to get ruined he was like Indi- no and he got he called the hotel i said pascal you can't no get the help he got the hotel manager over there do you have any old sheets and she said, "For what?" He said, "We need to clean this." Yeah. And literally, he was down on his hands and knees scrubbing the concrete pathway that led to that little um, mini church thing that they had hmm. to make sure that Grania's dress would not be soiled before her wedding. To make sure that it was absolutely perfect. And that's just how he is. Every teeny tiny detail. I mean, right up until she walked up the aisle, we were the two, the last two out there with her. I know. To make sure that every detail was perfect before she walked into the room. Yeah. But that again, just says everything about I guess who we are and who Pascal is when it comes down to every teeny tiny attention to detail being taken care of.
1: And, and you, were again, the, we, you were the last ones on uh, the dance floor as well.
3: And we were the last ones on the dance floor. <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> we do, we love to dance and the crack of was fantastic. That was a fantastic, mm, fantastic wedding. Yes. And again, talking about love, filling a room and just being surrounded by all those people with all that love for Grania and Leon and it was just, it was utterly, utterly magical and it was it was spectacular, mm. truly, truly magical.
1: Yeah.
3: And then we were back in Dublin again, um, in literally five weeks later, or six weeks, or was it in the beginning of March, mm. um, for the um, Saint Joseph's of Shankill uh, Home had the fashion, the Irish Fashion Collective show at City Hall, and literally again we arrived literally the night, the morning of the show, and we were in there as they're setting up City Hall, which is absolutely gorgeous with that huge big rotunda. And Catherine Candell is doing. Was producing the show and there's pascal out there organizing the chairs and helping literally we were jet lagged and i'm back there pinning girls into dresses and pascal's out front helping set up the chairs and where to put them and getting the spacing right and then rehearsing the girls how to walk and some of my dresses were huge big ball gowns that he wanted to make sure the girls knew exactly how to work them and walk them every single attention to detail up until it was five o'clock and we literally had to run to the hotel to change so that we could be back at six o'clock in time for their reception. Mm. It was, it was insane. And literally it was insane. It was amazing. And we met so many of our friends were able to make it to the show. And that I think was the last major event that happened in Dublin before COVID shut down. It was the last fashion event, the last fundraiser, and it was hugely successful. The next day we met a whole bunch of friends um, that we were able to meet for lunch. And then Sunday morning we flew back to New York and then literally the world ended the following week was insane we were going at 600 miles an hour and then it was like someone stuck on the brakes and we thank god we were wearing seat belts or we would have gone straight through the windscreen literally
1: so let's talk about that the last few months it's been such a whirlwind globally but certainly for you guys it's been a huge period of change i mean your pace of life has utterly transformed from, you know, flying here, there and everywhere. All of this has stopped and now it comes to summer 2020 and you you get the news that you're hoping and praying never happens, but it does.
3: It was, it was, a, I have, the, the, the first shock was the furlough um, that mm. the whole company was being put on ice and all of us were being, basically being laid off for three months without pay. So there was... There was the shock of dealing with that but it was a collective shock and i think it wasn't just us everybody was going through the same it, it was a collective global pandemic and many people were in the same position we were so there was there was the sense at the time more of anxiety um and worry for our health and well-being and especially that for pascal's family in guadeloupe and my family in ireland and our friends everywhere because we were reaching and going into this unknown void of this, what seemed to be deadly virus that was snaking across the world. And we were hauling ourselves up in our houses and making sure we had enough food to last us for 10 months and God knows what. And it was it was just a very scary period. And again, as I refer back to listening to Governor Cuomo every day on the radio and updates and the figures were going up and going higher and literally there was no traffic moving, there were no airplanes flying, the neighbourhood just became this quiet, quiet, eerily quiet it was just a totally bizarre time for everyone but obviously we were all experiencing that in our own corners of the globe and praying for the safety and the well-being of our families and at the time at the, just right at the very beginning we were vibing dad and vibing pascal's mom and i i called dad one day and he just finished the rosary and i said oh shoot i could have i could have joined you in for a decade he said well tomorrow why don't you when you call me we'll just say one together i'm like that'd be great mm-hmm. and i thought Maybe Deirdre wants to join in, and maybe my Auntie might want to join in. So before I knew it, we had a group, and every day for six, for the oh, to this day we're still doing it. But we called each other, and there would be first of all, how are you doing? And Auntie would tell us how things were in San Jose, in California, and then. Dad would tell us about their day in Ballyhig and we'd tell them about our day in New York. And then my sister, Deirdre, who works in a doctor's office and was actually working through all of this, which had us all freaked out, Mm. would tell us about how her day at work was and who was on the road and who or who wasn't and how things were going on in the doctor's office. And then we'd say the rosary at the end of it. But it was a great way to just keep us all connected, visually connected and seeing each other every day. And then we did the same thing. Except without the rosary, but with Pascal's mom, we'd call her in the morning when she got up because she um, she lives in Guadeloupe, on the island of Guadeloupe in the Caribbean, and it's a small island, and the infection rate there was high, and the hospital was tiny, so we were obviously very concerned for her. Um, And his brother is there too; he lives beside her. So every day we were on the phone with her, morning, noon, and in the evening after she'd had her dinner, just a quick call, just to keep her connected, and it was keeping us all sane. Mm -hmm. So we went through all of that for um, three months. And I was in, work, in touch with my work colleagues as we were going all just making sure everyone was okay and how they were dealing with the, the pandemic. And then time was coming closer for the furlough to come to an end. And I was back in touch with my boss um, in Canada and the how the, how we were going to come back. Cause we were worried, obviously we knew the retail world had collapsed and mm-hmm. the world of evening wire had certainly collapsed. And the only thing that was really working was bridal. And that was sort of limping along just because of the whole whole supply chain had been disrupted. But there was the president of Thea, Evelyn. Um, Obviously, we, we were the top one of the company that I worked for. There was eight different divisions and Thea was one of the top three performing divisions. So we were not worried about going back. We knew we'd be going back and... We'd have to re-strategize. We were, I was just worried about my staff being cut back dramatically because I had a big team and I was worried for that. But my boss reassured me, no, you're all coming back and they're going to bring back the whole team. Um, so that was great news. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, but our salaries were being cut significantly. And I'm like, okay, I guess we can deal with that. I mean, we all understood where the world was and corners had to be cut and it was it seemed to be... Everywhere, the people that were going back to work were having their salaries reduced significantly. Um, And then um, a week before I was supposed to go back, I'd had my COVID test. Um, I found out that the PR team had been let go. Mm. I'm like, oh, no, that's not good. And then uh, the sales team were let go. And I'm like, I, I kept texting him, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening with Evelyn? He said, oh, I'll get back to you on Evelyn. I'm like, what do you mean get back to me on Evelyn? And then all of a sudden, Evelyn called me. She had been let go. I'm like, he let go the president of the company. I'm like, where are we going? Um, And then, of course, I got a call um, a week later after hanging out in a week of complete and utter um, sort of radio silence um, that the company was changing direction. There was new management and they decided that they were going to be taking... The brand that I had created, basically in a totally new direction, and that there was no longer any need for me in the company, and I was wished luck and thanked for my 15 years of service and see ya. (laughs) So that was that was a very um, it was a very that was a very difficult period. There was sort of, and I have to be honest, there was the relief, there was a, a bizarre relief that the the franticness of my life and the work-life balance that was so out of whack um, had come to an end because it was I just couldn't manage it and I couldn't figure out how to manage it. So there was the, the relief of all of that anxiety of work was, um, I, I guess the initial reaction, believe it or not, was relief.
1: Mm. Like but was then interested.
3: as the relief sunk in, and I'm like, at least I don't have to go back to all that craziness, all of a sudden what really began to sink in, sink in was that job defined me for the past 15 years and everything that I felt who I had become, Don O'Neill, the designer, um, as far as who, I mean, not, more, not from my friends, but from a f- professional point of view, from my career point of view, um, all of the things we had done around the world, all of the traveling we had done, all of the shows we had done, everything was related to Thea. Mm. And all of a sudden I had been Untethered from what I felt this defined who I was, and there's sort of
1: um it knocks your I don't confidence. know if it's a
3: period of mourning. It just it yeah. well my confidence was thrown out the. At, at first my confidence wasn't affected, but then I was replaced basically with a new creative, a new design director, um, who was a colleague that worked for a different division, and all of a sudden the brand is still there, but I'm not there. And all of a sudden I sort of felt. I had been cast aside and deemed worthless by the people that I had earned so much money for over 15 years and made them incredibly successful. And all of a sudden, they had decided, okay, enough with him. And now we're on to someone else. We'll we'll get someone else to take over and do something else with this. And there was a sense of... I I, I shouldn't say worthlessness, but there is that sense as a creative person. And it's a rejection,
1: I suppose. It was a
3: rejection. And as a creative person, I'm always doubting myself. And which is, thank God, Pascal for his patience trying to shore me up. But and being a Gemini, I'll design when I'm designing, I'll design a dress, but I'll do five versions of it or six i I'm like long sleeve, no short sleeve, no v-neck, no boat neck, no full skirt, no slim skirt. I drive myself bananas going round in circles to find the best version of the dress. I'm like, oh, yeah, but if I put a full skirt, it'll be too expensive. And then I'll put embroidery on the neck. Oh, no, but then too much embroidery. I am I weigh up so many things in my head when I'm, when I'm working, and I think it was part of the success of the brand. But there's that insecurity that, is this the right way? Is that the, the wrong way? So there, there's an inherent insecurity in what I do. And then when someone likes what I did, I'm like, yay, thank God they liked it. Instead of I, I never put anything out there thinking yeah super confident I'm awesome and that's fantastic there's that just fingers crossed hoping people will like it and people will wear it and feel fabulous in it and then the fact that I literally was let go was like I had the rug pulled out from underneath me and what I thought I stood for as a designer and what I thought I represented to the company and what my value was to them and then you find out you're valueless and they've no they've no need of you and. And you can be replaced in a second,
1: I think a lot of people listening will resonate with what you're saying because a lot of people's careers, jobs have changed radically, some people have been in the position you've been in, and it's it's really it's really hard to first of all make sense of it, deal with the physical like the you know the lack of earnings all of that, but then it's how it affects your self worth as you as you as you're just talking about there, and that feeling of well, who am I without?
3: Psychologically, it's, there's, there's, I guess the fact that I've been separated from work coming up on seven months or going into eight months, it's starting to feel like, oh my God, well, I, I don't know what's next. Yeah. And yesterday, Pascal and I went for a long walk. It's, the weather here is glorious right now in November with bright blue skies and all the trees are oranges and golds and the sun is this beautiful orange shade as it's setting of this golden yellow colour. And we're walking on the the river and Pascal's like, well, now, what what do you want to do next? And I'm like, honestly, and I told him, I said, if a fairy godmother showed up right now with a magic wand, I don't even think I could ask her what it is I want to do next. And that scared me that the reality that I'm so frazzled by everything that's happened that I don't even know what what I want to manifest next in my life, which is very crippling Mm. and kind of scary. And... The desire to just crawl under the bed and just pull the covers over you and just not get out of bed is kind of something I'm trying to shake off and I'm trying to work through, but it's not as easy as you would think. Mm. And I'm surrounded by loving people such as yourself and my family and they're telling everyone's telling me, Don, this is for the better and you look back in this years from now and you'll you'll be thankful that this happened and great things are in store for you. And I truly want to believe that with my whole heart, but I'm feeling a little bit um, lost. And I I use the expression about the compass and having my true north removed from the compass and that the needle is just spinning around in mad circles and I'm looking down at my compass that normally guides me and it's not working. It's just spinning around like crazy and... And I'm feeling the clock is ticking down and, oh, my God, I don't know what direction to go in, which is a little bit anxiety inducing, to say the least.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh. Which yeah. is normal, which is which is real, which is normal. And I think anyone, anyone can relate to that if they've been in a similar situation. But for someone like you who has. Uh, I, I'm as far as I'm aware, you've never been in this position before. This has never happened to you before. So you've never felt this type of of change, of rejection, whatever you want to call it. So this is a shock to the system on so many levels. And having worked so hard for so long, you're now going and your life being the way it was pre-COVID and now it I mean, I completely appreciate that there are some days when you feel like, well, what, what, what am I what am I doing today? Um, but you are working on a book. Am I right? I am. Yeah.
3: Well, the good th- the good thing, the good thing, I do love to write and I've always loved writing. And um, I'm one of these people, you know, those newsletters you get at Christmas time that you don't have time to read and it's like two pages long and you're like, oh, gee, here's another newsletter and people don't have the time to read it. Don O'Neill is one of these people. My newsletter is 24 pages long <laughs> and it's double-sided. <laughs> and, and it takes three days to sit down and read it. But I just... And I know people, a lot of people enjoy getting it and reading it and other people were like, holy God.
1: I mean, most people (laughs) if they even do send a Christmas card, it's a plain Christmas card to such and such, lots of love happy Christmas, whatever. You know, it is a a package that we get every year from you and Pascal and it's so personalised and so beautiful and I love pouring over it and it means so much. So I can't wait for your book.
3: Well, the thing is with I have had quite the story and yeah. quite, I've been blessed. And as I said, going back to feeling like I was born under a rainbow, My whole story from from Haig all the way through training to be a chef and then switching and going back to college and training to be a designer and moving to London and then moving from London to Paris and then from Paris to New York. And there are so many stories of crazy things that I did and fun things that I did and extraordinary people that I met. Um, that it it merited being a book. And I have a great friend in Hig, um Her name is Mary Loughran. And she's been a huge believer of Don O'Neill for years and years and years. And always said, Don O'Neill, there's a book in you and you need to write a book. Promise me you'll write a book. And this has been going on for years. And finally, with everything that happened, I decided, OK, I have the time. I'll sit down and I'll start to write. And I'm now 130 pages in, and I'm, I'm 130 pages in, and I'm 26. So mm. I still have another. <laughs> I still have a ways to go. I'm still in Europe. I haven't even gotten to Paris yet. Yeah. But it's I'm, I've been in. That has been rewarding, um, and I guess keeping me sane a little bit to see the journey that I've had, and to begin to see a pattern of of how my life has been shaped, and the people that came into it that guided me along the way, and as I look back on it things that you think in your life that are random um, weren't so random. And when you think your life sort of meandered from left to right and right to left and all over the place, for some reason, when you look back, it becomes a straight line. It's like you pull a string and it just, all the dots are connected in a straight line, even though at the time you thought they were all curve balls. So I, I guess in my own, I should know from my own experience that with the, with the curve balls, everything does pull straight into a, a definite line and, And I have to pray and hope and just be confident that this curveball, which seems to be the biggest curveball I've ever been thrown, will, in hindsight, line right up with all of those other dots down through the past 54 years that have formed the life that I've had and that they will just continue to, the dots will continue to line up and will continue to be blessed and be surrounded by wonderful people and meet more wonderful people and just... uh, the goal for Pascal and I is to make the world a better place Mm. for people that we we love and care for and anyone that comes into our orbit. And And I think that's sort of the the overarching story of our lives. And I Mm. hope that's something that we will continue to do. And I think that's part of the fear I fear now that our possibility to exert change or influence or good into the world has sort of been diminished by the fact that I've been sort of Taken off my public platform, and I don't know how I'll ever reach that again. So it's so I don't know. Or just, I'm just hoping that all of this is happening for a good reason, and that good will come from it.
1: Well, I for one, I'm really looking forward to reading the book when it's completed. And another person that you're going to have to get the book to straight away for her book club <laughs> is your pal Oprah.
3: Oh gosh, and yeah. that could open up
1: something <laughs> else new. Um, Don, thank you so much for your time especially especially right now with all that's going on and for being so open and honest um it's, well, it's, I'm just,
3: it's... it was lovely to talk to you it's It's cathartic because i I don't really talk very much about what I'm going through. I'm mm. sort of always turning up the 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 better cheek and keeping my spirits up, but I don't really divulge what we're feeling, so it's it's nice to be able to just sit down and. Just yourself and myself and just have that conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I can't wait to see you guys in person again. Hopefully it won't be too long before hope. that happens.
3: Gosh, from your mouth to God's ears. Yes, hopefully yeah. this, they'll have the vaccine out soon and the world will begin to pick itself up and dust itself off and, and that we will all be better, stronger people because of it. Yes. This is my hope and prayer.
1: I'm so thankful to Don for being so real and for sharing his perspective with us. And I know he'll shine in whatever he turns his hand to next. And I, for one, am very excited for his book. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with friends and family and support the podcast by clicking follow, giving a rating and leaving a little comment. Thank you so much. This episode of Ready to Be Real Conversations was brought to you in partnership with Revive Active, your daily super supplement made here in Ireland.